Psalm 121, the word of the Lord says this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. We are in Psalm 121. If you have a Bible that has subtitles or headings, you might notice that this psalm is, uh, has the prescription, uh, a song of ascents or a song of degrees. And you'll notice if you kind of flip through a couple of the psalms going forward that there are several other psalms that bear the same title. Um, and most uh, goes through Psalm 134. And these are mostly linked, uh, traditionally that is, with the Babylonian exile. So Psalms 120 through around 134 are traditionally linked with that time period. And it is either they were sung by God's people in, in their fervent cries for either the celebration of or the expectation of being released from that captivity. Being released from that exile. That which they so yearned and longed to enjoy and, and experience just filled their choruses, filled their songs they yearned to have that presence back. They yearned to have that peace of God back again. They yearned to be where God had promised them. And so they sung. You can flip through some of these psalms and you can, <clears throat> you can hear and you can and feel just the fervency, just the desperation in their words. This one, of course, Psalm 121, is perhaps the most popular of them. Especially the first two verses. You might have committed these first two verses to memory. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. It's a popular psalm. We find here the psalmist unnamed. He's unidentified necessarily here. But the psalmist is in a valley. You can see that because he's looking around and all he sees is hills all around him, mountains encircling him. And so his present situation could be rightly described as the psalmist in Psalm 23 describes as a valley of shadow and death. He's distressed, he's, he's in a deep, dark valley, perhaps physically and spiritually. He doesn't see help. He doesn't see hope. The hills all around him are a formidable force that indicates just how fearful he is. He's estranged from God. He's alone and hopeless. And such is why he questions, how can my help come here? Where is my help going to come from? How are you going to help me, God? How are you going to get to us? I think that's why I feel like this psalm is appropriate for you and I here this morning. It's appropriate for our current situation. Maybe in the last several weeks you've even prayed a prayer similar to this. Where is my help going to come from? Where, how are you going to help me? Fearing about whatever. 
There's innumerable, innumerable things we can worry about, is there not? You can just open up a browser or open up the newspaper and you can see headline after headline of things that we can be concerned with or distressed about. What our government's doing, what the economy is doing, what the climate is doing, what, are, what, what this uh, uh, global pandemic is doing. <laughs> There's a lot of things to worry about if we let it. There's a lot of things to be fearful of if we, if we let it. There's no shortage of things that we could stress about or fuss over or fret about if we let them. A lot of times that's what happens. We just see what's going on. We see the circumstances. We see the catastrophe that's around us. And we let, that, let us get so fretted and worried and frightful. And the same is with the psalmist here. He looks around, what does he see? All he sees are hills. How is my help going to come? How am I going to be helped here from whence comes my aid? His situation looks drastically dark. It looks too hard. Remember we looked at that last week from Jeremiah 32? This situation looks too hard for you, God. And such is what the psalmist is reminded of, and he confesses. He confesses what he, he is weak about, he confesses what he is desperate about, and he follows up that confession with what he knows is true. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Remember, as we were studying Psalm 119 through our adult Bible study, we constantly made the point. That many times the Psalms are, are words that the psalmist, whoever that might have been, were, was wanting to make true in his own life. They weren't necessarily things that he was always putting into practice. Such is why you can see right here in these first two verses that he's confessing something and he's remembering something that he knows is true. He's almost reminding himself of what he should already know. He's reminding himself that, yes, I am in this valley, but I know that my help comes from the Lord. So he looks up. He looks up beyond the hills. Because he knows that he's not alone in this valley. He has a helper. A helper who is no less than the maker of heaven and earth himself. God, the maker, meets the psalmist's need exactly and precisely. He comes right to where he is and gives him the exact help that he so desperately craves. Verse 1 is the psalmist's desperation. Verse 2 is the Lord's provision. The answer to that desperation. And so what does that look like? What does the Lord provide? Well I want to walk through the rest of the text. Because there's a, a fascinating thing that the Lord does for his people. Those who are singing this chorus. Those who are trusting in him. You'll notice. If you look at your, at your translation of scripture. It might have a different wording there. Especially in verse 3 where it talks about he who keeps you. If you'll notice that word keeps is repeated throughout the text. And either as in verse 5, Lord your keeper. Or in verse 7, the Lord shall preserve you. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming uh, in. All of those words are in fact those six times the words keep or preserve. Throughout are the same word in the Hebrew. They're the same word in the Hebrew text. And they come and they mean uh, to protect. 
or the protector. So here, this is what God is providing for his people. Protection where in the midst of their distress. In the midst of their, uh, in the midst of their fretting. God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, is doing what? He's protecting their lives, their souls. And he is relieving their trouble and their catastrophe by providing his sovereign protection over them. That's what's so fascinating to me. That even in the middle of their valley, they had a, as we could quote the psalmist from Psalm 23 again, they had a rod and a staff that comforted them and protected them, even as they were going through that valley of shadow and death. So here, I want to walk through the text this morning and look at three properties of the protection that God provides to his children. You'll notice in verses 3 and 4, we have protection that does not sleep. Protection that does not sleep. Look at it again. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. It's a striking promise, is it not? That this God who looks after you never has to take a nap. (laughs) He never sleeps. He never closes his eyes. They were being protected by a God who never needed rest. He never needed to lie down and catch a quick 15-minute cat nap. He never took their eyes off them and took a break from listening and tending to all of their cares and worries and fears. He never needed a break from that. He never needed to take a slumber and close his eyes because he was too uh, disconcerted by the constant fretting and fearing. He is the protector who never sleeps. Who never lays down to rest. Albert Barnes, the great commentator on the scriptures, he says this. God is never exhausted, is never weary, is never inattentive. He never closes his eyes on the condition of his people, on the wants of the world. He never closes his eyes to that. He never closes his eyes to where you are. To the stress that you feel. To the fear that you are going through. Through all of the affliction that you are enduring. He never closes his eyes to that. He never sleeps on that. He is always attentive to that we might say. I want to point out two things about this. This unslumbering protection if I can use that phrase. If you remember uh, turn with me to 1 Kings. I want to take you to a passage here. I love this scene. This unslumbering protector, because I want to point out to you, is unlike any other God. Only the keeper of Israel doesn't have to sleep. I'm going to take you to 1 Kings 18. I want to show you that, because I love this passage. 1 Kings 18, if you remember, is the scene of Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal at the foot of Mount Carmel. If you remember that scene, it's a a fascinating story. Elijah, he challenges the prophets of Baal to a competition. He wanted to see whose deity was really true and certain and right. So look at, look at 1 Kings 18, look at verse 20. It says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. 
But the people answered not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So here we have the challenge. An altar with a bull on it, and he says, you call to your God and see if he can consume it in fire. You have one prophet of Jehovah against 450 prophets of Baal. And he's just making the wager. Let's see whose God is really true. Let's see which one is actually alive. So they have this competition. The prophets of Baal goes first. Look at verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many and call the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from the morning and even until noon. All morning they are crying out saying, oh Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. They were leaping and shouting and crying, oh Baal, hear us. But that phrase is so powerful. No one answered. I love, I love how Elijah mocks them. I love how Elijah, he taunts them. Look at verse 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, cry even louder, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. <laughs> So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. Listen to these words. No one answered. No one paid attention. They were crying and screaming and trying to get the attention of a God who was not even alive. (laughs) As as Elijah says, of a God who is sleeping. (laughs) Where is he? Did he go on a journey? Did he go out? Is he just meditating? Is he asleep? Do you need to rouse him from sleep? He's taunting these prophets. He's trying to get them to see just how uncertain and untrue and false the, the God that they were worshiping really was. And if you remember the rest of the story, we won't read, but if you read from verses 30 down through verse 40, you, can, you remember the scene that all this happens, then Elijah goes and he, he doubles down on the certainty of God. How so? He douses his altar in water three times. He douses it again and he says, yes, do it again. Because he wants to show them that despite all of the odds, the Lord Jehovah is certain. And he is always awake. Unlike this God. Who might have been sleeping. He was just dead. 
We have a God who is alive, who never has to sleep. This is the keeper of Israel. He is awake and alive and alert to their condition, their circumstance. I tell you this morning, he is alive and awake and alert to your condition, your circumstance. Whatever you are enduring, he is alive and awake and alert to it. He is the best night watchman because he never has to sleep. He never has to take a break from his watch, from his duty. His power, as Alexander McLaren says, is unwearied. It needs no recuperation. His watchfulness is never at fault. This is the God who is watching you, who is protecting you. He's an unslumbering protector. It's unlike any other God, but also it's unlike us. Why? Well, just because we need sleep. (laughs) You don't have to raise your hands and tell me if you're getting good sleep. (laughs) But we all need sleep. Your body is made for it. It's made, it's required to get sleep. It's what makes us human. In fact, if if we deprive our bodies of sleep, there are untold physical and mental illnesses and conditions that can come about from that. It can even kill us. If we don't get the proper rest that we need, it can lead to all manner of stress and worry and fear. You cannot resist your body's signals for sleep very long. You know, I've tried. Tried to stay up, you know. I, being in high school, being in youth group, we did the all-nighters. And you're literally resisting nature in an all-nighter. Because <laughs> your body wants to go to sleep. And there comes to a certain point when you get over that threshold. And then you're just, you're just in a different sort of mellow, weird state because you're just still awake, but you don't really remember any of it the next day after you go to sleep all day. You can't resist that urging for sleep. And that's, you might laugh and chuckle because it's just simple biology. Yes, we all need to go to sleep at night. And it's a chore to get your little kids to go to sleep even though you're telling them that they have to. And it's something that they always do. And yet, every single night, they're always surprised that they have to go to sleep at night. It's simple biology, but I think just in that fact of needing sleep, I think there's a lot of, lot of profound theology in that. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that is this, that you can go to sleep regardless of what is happening all around you, regardless of the news that is trying to keep you up, regardless of the mounting to-dos and projects and things that need to get done, you are free to go to sleep. Why? Because there is one who never has to go to sleep. There's one who never sleeps or slumbers. Have you ever thought of how unproductive you are when you sleep? You, You can't get anything done. I don't know the statistics on this, so this is a made-up one. But more than a third of your life, or a lot of your life, is going to be spent sleeping. Some people have noticed that, and so they're trying to harness all of the unproductive hours by putting little sleep trackers and monitors to make sure we're getting just enough sleep, and and so uh, we can get even uh, less sleep and be more productive throughout the day or the night or whatever. They're trying to harness that unproductive time. Even then, it's going to amount to little. But have you ever also thought how out of control you are when you go to sleep? You close your eyes, and you hope that the world doesn't stop spinning when you wake them up again. When you open your eyes again, you hope that the world hasn't, uh, hasn't burned while you were in REM. 
You don't have any control over the spinning of the world or the movements of the stars. And you hope that when you go to sleep, you wake up. And that's why one of the most beautiful prayers you can say in the morning is, Thank you for waking me up, God. What a wonderful day it is. Why? Because I woke up. I can see and savor your grace once again. This is the sermon, I would say, that sleep preaches to us. When you sleep, you're preaching a sermon to yourself. That you don't have to stay up all night worrying about the world. You don't have to stress about what the morning's headlines might read. You don't have to be anxious about tomorrow because you have an unslumbering protector. And he is the I am, the Lord of past, present, and future. And he's keeping his eye on the world. He's keeping his eye on the universe. You don't have to, have to stay up all night worrying about that, stressing about that. He is the unslumbering protector. It's the grace of sleep. David Murray, in this book called Reset, he writes this. By sleeping, we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God doesn't actually need us. When we close our eyes each night, we are saying, I don't run the world or the church or even my own little life. And you're saying to yourself that there's one who is better that runs and controls and rules. One who is an unslumbering and unsleeping protector of your life. It's a reminder that we aren't in control and that's good news because there's one who is even better in control and he never has to sleep. But look quickly, back at Psalm 121, because not only do we have protection that never has to slumber, never has to sleep, but we have also, number two, protection that is not distracted. Look at verse three again. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This Lord of unslumbering protection is also the Lord that is never distracted. He never takes his eye off us. He never loses sight of us. Even in this valley. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. Because notice the emphasis in those verses. Did you see it? Did you see the the individual, the personal emphasis that this Lord is protecting us with? Verse 3. He he steadies our footing. In verses 5 and 6. He shelters us from the noonday heat and the midnight chill. Day and night he is sheltering us. Verse 7. He is safeguarding us. He's protecting us from quote all evil. Whatever, Whatever evil forces that are coming upon us. He is safeguarding us from them. Verse 8. He is securing our every footstep. This is. The attentiveness of our protector. He is not distracted. What do I mean by that? He's he's not too big or too busy to notice you. Your God isn't too big or too busy to notice little old you. To notice your cares and your worries and your fears and your stresses. You might think this is a a thing that is inconsequential to God. 
But he notices it. He sees it. He sees that thing that is weighing you down. Big or small, significant or inconsequential. He sees it all and he hears it all and he knows it all. and He cares for it all. Why? Because you are enduring it. He cares for you. I, I think about this because before we were moving, this was actually right when we moved a little bit further south in Florida uh, last year, or in 2018, excuse me. And uh, we moved, and we had a, a German shepherd. She passed away before we moved up here into Pennsylvania. But uh, we had a German shepherd at that time. And the house we moved from uh, had a large property, so she was used to running around and roaming free. And the house that we moved uh, to further south uh, was very small. Uh, the, the property was very small, so the amount of space that she had to run around was reduced by, by tenfold. <laughs> And so she did not like it. She did not handle the move very well. And in fact, she ended up escaping one day. She left. We had no idea how she got out. She dug like a little hole under the fence or something like that. And she got out and she was, she was gone. We couldn't find her for days. And I remember uh, this dog held pretty special significance to Natalie and I. We got her almost exactly after we got married. And so she, when she turned six, that was kind of when we were celebrating our anniversary. So it was just... Like, I don't know, a weird thing like that. But, so she's gone now. So we're in a new place, and now our dog has left us. And I remember searching around the neighborhoods. And I'll admit, I remember driving around with my windows down, shouting for her and crying. (laughs) Where are you, you stupid dog? (laughs) But also, God, help me to find this dog. Seems inconsequential. It's just a dog. But it really was weighing on us. It was a big, uh, big thing. We had, it was just a, a lots of transition. And on top of all that, our dog left us. <laughs> I remember thinking after that, God cares about that. He cares about even me crying in my car because I lost my dog. You know why I know that? Because he says in Matthew chapter 10 that he notices when the sparrow falls and he notices when the hair on your head falls to the ground. That's how intimate and intricate his care and notice of you is. That is a type of God that cannot be distracted when he notices that hairs are falling off of your head. When he notices the unnoticeable sparrow that falls to the ground. This is an invitation that speaks to me. It's a, as a message, that a gospel, a good news that speaks to me. It's a message, uh, it's, it's the, the invitation from 1 Peter 5, 7 where it says, Cast all your cares on him for he will care for you. That means every single one of them. The big ones and the small ones. The lost dogs and the lost family members. Cast them all on this God. C.H. Spurgeon, the famed pastor over in London, he says, The wings of Jehovah amply guard his own, his own children from evils great and small, temporary and eternal. He guards you and protects you with that type of individual, undistracted care. These normal, these everyday, these trivial trials and cares, he cares for them. He notices them. Let me bring you to one other psalm uh, quickly. It's a psalm that you might remember, Psalm 8. If you go to Psalm 8, I'm going to read some verses here because this should make us astounded. 
As he says in Psalm 121, that this maker of heaven and earth is protecting him. And remember what David says in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? What is man? What is man that you notice him? What, who am I that you care about me? That you see me? That you are mindful of me? This is the God who is protecting you. The God who is putting stars and galaxies and holding them in the balance. And he is noticing you. He is caring for you. He is protecting you. A couple, a couple uh, weeks ago, uh, um, this post on social media, I don't know if it went viral, but it was going around, uh, around so to speak. And it was a post from a uh, self-proclaimed atheist. And in this post, he is describing Christianity in, the, in a way that he's trying to show people just how preposterous, preposterous it is. He's showing you how improbable, uh, uh, you know, through science, quote unquote, that it is that, that Christianity could be true. And he says this. Christianity is the belief that one God created a universe that is 93 billion light years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each one containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. And we say, exactly, yes, because the gospel tells me so. Because the gospel is true. Because I read the word and I see that this maker of heaven and earth, he is mindful of us. Mindful of us in such a degree that he becomes like us to die for us, to take our place for us. This is the mindfulness of God that he wants to have a relationship with you. Yes, in that expansive of a universe. He cares about you. Why? Because he's not just your maker, he's your father. He's your Abba, as it says in Romans chapter 8. To whom you can cry. This omnipotent and this omniscient and this omnipresent God is your father. Who loves you with an everlasting love. Who watches over you even as he watches over the whole universe. He is caring and protecting you individually, personally. I was thinking about that too. Just this undistracted, this, this care of a father. Braxton, my, my boy, he's, he's going to be 11 months, hard to believe. He's going to be 11 months this month. And, but for, for weeks, for months now, he's been trying to walk. But even before that, he, was, he figured out that if he was barefoot, his little stubby bare feet could stick to this plastic slide that we have in our house. It's, it's a steep little thing. But he can climb up the part where you're supposed to slide down. He figured out he could do that. So I would be sitting in, the, in my lounge chair just watching him. He can climb all the way up to the top. And I'm watching him making sure that he doesn't fall and kill himself. Because he's being Braxton. <laughs> and this thought hit me. That as I'm watching my little boy do this play, have fun. That that's the type of watchfulness that God has over us. 
That's the type of care that he has over us as our father. He's watching you. He's noticing you. And to think about the fact that he's doing that watchfulness, that mindfulness, that undistracted protection for every single one of us. Every single one who puts their faith in this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has that for a father. Has an undistracted protector for a father who is aware of, yes, even the distant stars that are erupting. And he's aware even, yes, the instant that you and I are distressed. He's aware and he's sovereign and he protects over all of that. But let me hasten quickly to the third thing. We have... Unslumbering protection, undistracted protection. But look at verses 3 through 8 again, because I want, to know, want you to notice protection that does not cease. Protection that does not cease. Look at Psalm 121, verse 3 again. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. The promise of these verses isn't just unsleeping or undistracted protection. It's unceasing protection. Protection that never comes to an end. That never stops. You notice in those verses the protection that he provides that's interesting. He, he promises, uh, or I should say, he does not promise to make the, the psalmist's path easier. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, I'm going to smooth out the path before you and make sure that you have everything that makes it easy and nice and happy and sunny. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to secure your footing. I'm not going to allow your foot to be moved. Yes, even as you're traversing over rocky terrain and terrible circumstances and things that are not going your way, I'm going to promise to make your footing sure. Sure on what? On the fact that night and day, as you come in and as you go out, you have every single moment that you breathe, you are being watched with unceasing and abiding protection. All the time, you are under this preserving, protective care of this Heavenly Father, of this Maker of heaven and earth. Every other safeguard, every other thing that you think will protect you is flimsy and fickle and false. It'll be pointless to look for it or to trust in it. There's only one who can supply the help that you need. There's only one who can protect your soul. Did you see that in verse 7? That he's going to protect your soul, the eternal life that is within you. There's only one who can protect that for all eternity. It is the one who is himself eternal. The one who is himself eternal is the only one who can safeguard your eternity. And such is what he has promised to do. Satan. He wants you to look inward at your situation. He wants you to see the the calamitous effects all around you. The circumstances that seem hopeless and dire and desperate. He wants you to see that. Like Peter walking on the water. He wants you to see just the waves and the gushing waters all around you. 
promise of the scriptures is to not look at all the catastrophe, but to look at the one who made the heaven and the earth. To look at the Jesus who is walking on the water with you. To look at the one who is there preserving and protecting your soul. Yes, even in the valley of the shadow of death. The call, the truth, the hope is in looking up. Looking up at the one who hasn't promised an escape out of it, but has promised presence in the midst of it. Look up because he is there with you. He is there even now. So when, when, you're, when, you're, when worry is surrounding you, when, when fear is, is overwhelming you and just flooding your soul, when anxiety is starting to get control, when shame is, is wagging its finger at you and saying, you do not have a hope, when regret is making you despair, look up. Look up at this maker who provides and preserves you with unceasing protection. Protection that he has secured for you by the shedding of his own blood. By the shedding of his own blood on a tree that you and I deserved. He protects you in that. He protects you in himself being unprotected and being swarmed by the taunts and the violence of man that was due our sin. Protector became unprotected for us and laid his life down so that we might find ours. This is the promise, the gospel of this protector who is always attentive, who is always aware, who always has you on his mind. Have you thought about that? You, you are always on his mind. He can never forget you. You may feel forgotten by some people or by some friends or by some family members. Or you may even feel forgotten by God. David confesses that several times throughout the Psalms. The fact of the matter is he can never forget you. You are never forgotten by this protector. And there's never a moment when Jesus is not ceasing to represent you. He is always your representative before the Father. Such is why we have hope. Such is why we can glory. Such is why we can rejoice. Because that intercessory work for us never ends. That intercessory protection never ceases. It's a protection that doesn't have to sleep. That is never distracted. And that never comes to an end. This is the God who embraces you. This is the Lord your protector. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.